welcome to the fourth edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. Joining forces with me on this podcast, as always, is Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, Brian. How are you? Very well, thanks, Mark. So, should we go straight into the news then, if that's all right with you? Yes, why not? So, the first story I want to cover this week um, comes from Reba, and they've called for an extension to the restriction of combustible materials. So, Reba, which is the Royal Institute of British Architects, has issued a detailed response to the government's review of the restrictions on combustible materials and on the external walls of buildings. Reba recommends that the restriction introduced in December 2018 should be extended to include hotels, hostels, boarding houses, indeed all buildings where a catastrophic event could cause multiple fatalities. It should also apply to key materials and external walls only. If not, the list of materials exempt from the ban must be clarified and should include all the materials that do not contribute to the spread of fire across external walls. In relation to this particular point, Reba recommends that within external wall constructions, the ban should only restrict plasterboard, sheathing boards, insulation, outermost cladding materials and significant materials in balconies and buildings elements to the European classification of A2-S1. The ban should not include the building's primary structure. The primary structure should have adequate fire protection as set out in the building regulations, requirement B3, and when including the external wall should meet requirement B4. So from my point of view, Brian, obviously covering that in a bit of detail there, this is a really interesting news story. We've talked about um, in, in previous episodes the need to widen what's included in combustible materials. When I go back to my days at the Fire Protection Association, combustible materials in building is something that they are really against full stop. So timber frames, for example, is not something that they want to see used as a primary building material. And I read it over the weekend. There's been a huge reduction since Grenfell in the amount of buildings using uh, timber frames. So I think this is particularly newsworthy. And of course, you can see it on the website, uh, fsmatters.com. I don't know what your take on it is, Brian. Well, I found the interesting part of the story, Mark, was actually the second half of it, if you like, where Reba recommends that if the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government will not alter the ban to only include those materials, then it should provide clarity on the list of materials that are exempt from the ban and include additional materials that do not specifically increase the potential fire load of external walls. What they're talking about here is not including the primary structure of the building, as you mentioned, uh, further research into the use of structural timber within external walls, such as cross-laminated timber, should be undertaken to determine performance when subject to real fire loads is their take on the matter. And also it should be extended on a precautionary basis to include relevant buildings with a story over 11 metres above ground level, uh, pending further research to determine the appropriate height threshold. And research should include intelligence from the fire and rescue services. I think that last point is particularly apt. And I think, you know, when we look into this further in upcoming episodes, we'll try and bring in Nal Rowan from the Association of Specialist Fire Protection, who obviously focuses on the passive fire protection element. You know, the passive fire protection side of the fire sector has become so much more prominent since Grenfell. It's obviously key. It's in the public eye. And now more than ever, that has become more at the forefront of many news stories that we cover than the, you know, the traditional scene in terms of fire and rescue service response times, you know, the number of um, attendees instance etc it's certainly the topic that's at the forefront now and i think we'll try and bring niall in in a future episode to get his take on it so brian what other news caught your eye this week 
Yes, as of next Monday, the 1st of June, the Fire Industry Association will be providing online examinations to afford uh, practicing fire safety folks, professionals more choice in terms of how they wish to sit those examinations to attain their necessary qualifications. Uh, through offering online examinations, the organisation fervently hopes that this then enables fire sector professionals to complete the association's industry-recognised qualifications from the comfort of their own home. Uh, full requirements to take the examination will be published in due course. The best thing we can uh, advise people to do is look at the FIA's website. That's www.fia.uk.com and all the detail will be on there. Importantly, Mark, those practitioners who've taken training online and are due an examination will be notified about the available dates going forward. And equally importantly, those delegates who've had uh, recent examinations necessarily cancelled since the start of April and the ongoing pandemic will be contacted about sitting those tests online in due course. At present, and this is quite important, the online examinations are only for the FIA dedicated range of qualifications, and those are, and this is the list, uh, the fundamentals in fire detection and alarms, that's units one and two, the foundation course, the environmental course, the fire detection and alarms advanced maintainer course, the fire detection and alarms advanced commissioner course, and last but by no means least, the fire detection and alarms advanced installer course. As you would expect, Mark, before launching the online examinations process to the wider industry, the FIA made sure to undertake robust testing and trialling of this process, and pleasing the feedback from industry professionals has been very positive indeed. We've reported on that feedback on, on FS Matters on the website. Uh, for example, Stephen Middleton, who's director at MNG Fire Protection, who are based in Essex, uh, the business has used the FIA's training services for several years now, and they're very pleased with it. And the company has had members of staff pass level three fundamentals conversion course, for example, as well as the level three fundamentals course. And they're really pleased that engineer Ben Grimble, uh, congratulations to him from all of us here at uh, Fire Safety Matters. He's become the first in the UK to pass the online BS 58391 fundamentals qualification by taking the online examination. So great news there. I think the key takeaway here really, Mark, is that it's vital every company and organisation continues to adapt its practices to suit the working regime enforced as a result of the pandemic. They should actively enable their engineers to remote learn and also pass credited examinations thanks to the use of modern technology. We're all using it now, so why not? It's also a really positive step, I think, uh, by the Fire Industry Association, and to my mind, should be embraced by as many companies as possible. Well, I know, having done interviews with Ian in the magazine over the last couple of years, Ian Moore, the chief executive of the FIA, he said just how challenging these examinations have been. And... It's a real area of focus for the FIA. It's a real area of focus competencies and accreditation for the Fire Sector Federation, of which obviously I'm a member. So it's great to see the FIA has really led the way in terms of online training, now online examinations, because we're all facing a different world right now. Brian, you and I are speaking to each other right now for this podcast from two different parts of the country. So we know ourselves just how important the use of technology has been. And it's great to see the FIA leading the way on this. Last week, it was a great privilege for me to interview Bob Doherty via Microsoft Teams. Bob is the chairman of the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. We spoke about a number of issues, including passports to fire safety for new-built projects, as well as the core work of the Institute itself. First, though, we examined the importance of accreditation for designated fire safety work. Bob, thank you very much for joining us this morning. You were a member of the Fire and Rescue Service for over 30 years, and subsequent to that, you've been a consultant specialising in areas such as fire engineering and fire risk assessments. 
what's your view on the overriding need for accreditation when it comes to specialist fire safety work? Well, I think uh, a long time in the past, Brian, uh, fire safety was just thought of as a bit of an aside to anything going on in, in the world of building uh, and, and safety. And therefore, there was no real specialists. In fact, the specialists were, were actually the fire and rescue service who did their training, their very professional training, at the fire service college. So it, it came to pass, as it were, that, that there were too many cowboys out there, that there was no checks on experience or competence on the work that was being carried out. And a great example of that is what I call the pink foam syndrome. And you know pink foam is fire-stopping foam. And it can be used in certain instances. And But what used to happen was that there'd be a big gap somewhere in a building and someone would take the builder or someone would take uh, a tube of pink foam, give it to uh, the apprentice on site, and they would just go and fill this big hole with pink foam and think that it was all right. So there was no, there was no consistency, there was no experience, there was no competence there at all, and they expected it to be right. The other thing, of course, is, and, and concerns me uh, greatly, is that uh, fire risk assessors are out there we still haven't got rid of the £99 fire risk assessment. And because fire risk assessors weren't regulated at the start when they brought out the, uh, the legislation, the fire safety order, then anybody, anybody can still go and do it. But people have got to get the message that fire safety is a specialism. People need to be trained, they need to be competent to do it, and they need to be also tested against the standards. So, yeah, I'm passionate about competency. I'm really passionate about accreditation. People putting themselves forward to be tested and checked against the standard so that everybody knows that those people, when they go out to do a job, whatever a job it is in fire safety, they're qualified, trained and competent. So following on from that, Bob, in what ways is the Institute of Fire Safety Managers actually helping fire risk assessors in this particular area? Well, we've always had uh, a view from the Institute that what we should be doing is upping the competency of fire risk assessors. Again, as I said before, it was never regulated. So in the case of the government won't regulate, I think it's uh, beholden on the, uh, on the professional bodies to do their own regulation. And we certainly did that uh, in, in the Institute. Uh, and we moved it on. I mean, we, we did away with our old register. And a few years ago, much to a lot of derision by some people, uh, but we moved on to uh, what we call NAFRA, which was a nationally accredited fire risk assessors register for, uh, for fire risk assessors who've been through third-party accreditation. Well, latterly, of course, we recognise that there is a gap in the industry. And what we've actually done is... We've produced a three-tier register now uh, where people can actually come in and see fire risk assessment as a career. And that's what we're trying to promote in the Institute, that it is part of a career pathway. And if they come in, they can go onto our register at Tier 1 if they're just starting out. And jointly Tier 1, we'll provide them with as much information, mentoring, whatever as possible for them to get started. They move up to Tier 2, which is uh, competent fire risk assessors. And we still have our top tier, which is third-party accredited fire risk assessors. So that's what we're trying to do to help fire risk assessors as such, as well as the general industry in, in fire safety. Uh, we're trying to provide a professional body for those people that are out there trying to be professionals in fire safety. 
That's excellent, Bob. Thank you for that. A couple of years ago, you wrote an excellent article for Fire Safety Matters entitled Passport to Fire Safety, and that was primarily looking at new build premises. It's really a great read, Bob, and the core idea within remains spot on from my perspective. Could you outline the basic concept you were proposing at the time and also give us an idea of where we are now with this idea or philosophy? Is it any closer to fruition at the present moment? Sure. Well, the, the idea came really, uh, I suppose, it, it was pre-Grenfell in my head, but post-Grenfell sort of uh, moved, it, moved it on and, and up to the notch. But the idea was that, you know, any building that's out there where people go in and fire safety legislation applies, you know, should have uh, its own passport. We have passports as individuals. Where we go around, it tells us our travel history, not much more, but... I thought, well, why can't a building have a passport? So that when it's built, it has that passport, and that passport contains all the information that you need about the building. And that's, I know that's an idealism, but at the same time, I go onto sites uh, and, I, and I go and do fire risk assessments. So the first thing I ask someone is, where's the fire strategy for this building? Where are the fire plans for the building? Nobody knows. And these, these, believe it or not, are fairly new buildings. You know, we're not talking about uh, conversions or old mills or whatever else. You know, new buildings, five years old, and they can't provide the as-built plans. They don't have a fire strategy or can't provide it. They have something called Regulation 38 of the building regulations, which is supposed to be all the fire safety information uh, for that building is handed over on completion to the owner uh, or the person who's going to operate the building. It never happens correctly you either get a full room full of uh, technical manuals or you get a couple of bits of uh, writing on the back of what we used to call a fag packet. Uh, so there's no consistency even in Regulation 38. But if you look at a building and all the information that you, you have in it, and if you store it as a passport, then you would have the as-built plans, you'd have the fire strategy for the building, you'd have the Regulation 38 handover details, Continuing on, you'd have the fire risk assessment or assessments as it continues on. Any changes should be recorded, change of use, style, building, alterations or whatever should be recorded in the passport. So it's what the, uh, what the Americans would call uh, a package of soup to nuts. You know, so you've got the whole history of the building there in one file that anybody, whether you're uh, an enforcing authority like a fire and rescue service, whether you're a fire, uh, fire risk assessor like myself, or a fire engineer, can actually go and, and access this passport, and it will give you the whole history of that building from start to finish to when it's demolished. So that was the idea of it. And it did come out on the back of, uh, out of my head on the back of uh, Grandfell. And I also believed at the time, I, I didn't quite believe that Dame Judith, uh, when she said, you know, the system is completely broken, it's not fit for purpose. I never quite believed that. Um, I just thought maybe, uh, you know, we just needed quite a few serious tweaks here and there to put it back online. I thought one of these passports for fire safety would do that. Now, moving on from that, of course, is that uh, we're now started, started to talk in the uh, industry's response group and beyond that at national level, having some kind of building identity, whether it's through BIM or similar to BIM or through the Passport for Fire Safety, 
Um, I'm not sure how it will come out in the end, but they're certainly talking about that, mainly for high uh, high-risk residential buildings at the moment, which are, as you know, the focus, but for high-risk buildings in general. So maybe slowly and slowly this will come along, but it's not going to be an instant magic wand overnight. You know, we're going to have to wait for this to come along in the future. A recent Fire Safety Matters podcast, Bob, we've heard very strong views on the need for proven competence in the sector from the likes of Ian Moore at the FIA and also Stephen Adams at BAFE. What's your take on this matter? Well, like I said in, the, in your first question, Brian, you know, we, fire safety is not on a side and it's been treated uh, even through uh, new buildings, like I said before. You know, I still look at plans of buildings sent by architects and I say, where's the fine strategy? And they go like, well, just look at the plans, it's in there somewhere. You know, it, that's not the way that we make buildings safe for the future. What needs to happen is that the whole industry needs to wake up. And when I talk about the industry, I'm talking about the building industry and the general public out there need to wake up and say, yeah, fire safety matters. And it is crucial that we have that, that it is at the forefront. And that's why we discussed on the uh, uh, one or two working group meetings that have been on that a fire risk assessor and a fire engineer should be there right slap bang at the start of the process of designing a building. You know, not being called in towards the back end when suddenly say, someone says, oh, hang on, we haven't got a fire strategy for this building. Well, what are we going to do? We'll get a fire engineer and then he can back engineer it and back write it. You know, it's like a second thought process and it shouldn't be. It should be foremost in everybody's mind. So, and if you're going to do that and have that recognition, then the industry itself has to step up and start to be proud of what they're doing, start to be tested against the standard, and start to be competent, be tested to be competent. Because that's the only way we're going to uh, improve. If, we still, uh, if we're still allowing the cowboys in, if we're still not regulating it, if people like ourselves and the Institute of Fire Safety Managers can't control as a professional body our members and give them some uh, benchmarks to work to, you know, we're going to continue on as we are now. So, yeah, it's so important that uh, people are competent and they put themselves forward to prove their competency. Now, a great example of that, and I have it all the time, and, and it does strike uh, a dull thud with me, especially after serving 32 years in the fire and rescue services. I have guys who come on and say, I'm competent. I've just spent 30 years in the fire brigade, you know, 20 years in fire safety. I don't need to prove I'm competent, because I am. And my question to them is... Who says you are? Because the only person that's telling me they're competent is, is this guy. He's, they're telling me they are, but they've not been tested against the standard and they're not being tested for their competence. And, you know, even after 52 years dealing with fire safety matters, a few years ago, because I believe I should be tested against my competence, so we could, I could go on the Institute's register, I put myself up for... Uh, uh, Warrington X over third party accreditation and I passed and that was tough but I passed you know so I proved my competence I don't have to say hey I've done 52 years in the in, in the fire industry ergo I'm competent that's not the right way to go and the sooner people in fire safety realise that go get tested for, for their competence then I think we're, we'll all be in a safer place totally agree with that Bob 
Uh, last but not least, um, can you tell us a little about the work of the Institute of Fire Safety Managers and what areas the organisation's focusing on when the world eventually returns to some form of normalcy? Yeah, Brian, I think the, uh, I've said for a long time that we're the fastest growing professional body in fire. Uh, I used to say in the UK, but, you know, we've, we've got a worldwide membership now, believe it or not. Uh, not as big as the IV, and, and we don't want to be as big as the IV. They are the, the, the top engineering professional body in fire. Um, uh, so we're not competing at that level, but we, we opened uh, uh, our first non-UK branch about two months ago in Abu Dhabi. You know, and we've got members uh, in the Middle East and the Far East as well. So, you know, our main focus here when we get back to normal is uh, to try and attract more members, even though through this lockdown period, believe it or not, our register, people who are registering on our fire successes register, and membership uh, has actually uh, gone up during this period. Whether people have got more time to sit and do the application form, I don't know. But hey, well, we'll, we'll leave that to debate. But our, our key uh, our key business, if you like, is, and our philosophy is that we, the Institute, are here for our members. Uh, so we're trying to do our best for our members. We try and engage them with some good, uh, some good technical meetings. And we'll be back on track with that. We've got a, uh, we've got our um, uh, AGM, which will be the first big action-packed day at Silverstone in uh, in uh, October, south of October it is, but it's on the website uh, to be sure. Uh, we're trying to engage our membership in uh, in those types of activities. I always say my philosophy is, you know, if you're going to give a day at work to come and listen to uh, um, a technical meeting, then you don't want to hear me or anybody else talking about the minutes of the last meeting or how much money we've got. You want good technical input that's going to help you uh, in the future and also add to your CPD. So we're pretty big on CPD issues at, at the moment as well. As I said, we've, uh, we've opened our first uh, international branch. You know, we were hoping that Wales uh, and or Scotland would come along before that, but uh, we haven't quite got around to that yet. And, you know, we like to stay fairly close to our membership. You know, we, we don't like to feel that we're remote or distanced from them. And the message that we get back from the membership is that we're not. They like our style. They like what we do. Uh, we're here for the membership, as I say, not the other way around. Uh, we are growing. We've still got a council of volunteers like myself, uh, but we do employ a business support manager and an administrative assistant. And we have uh, part-time our websites uh, and and all kinds, all things techie manager as well, uh, that deals with all those kinds of issues as well. So, you know, we're moving on. We want to capture a bigger audience, obviously, and we, we're trying to put together a, a strategic plan uh, for the next three to five years. And some of those things, and you might, if you go onto the website, look at the title at the top of it. We've changed it slightly, and although we're really still called the Institute of Fire Safety Managers, we, we now incorporate people like fire risk managers, life safety managers. We also want to try and attract building safety managers as well. You know, this new role that everybody's talking about coming along through the industrial response group and competency groups. So we would like to appeal to a wider audience. We think we can, and hopefully, hopefully, that will help us grow into a fairly big organisation.
In terms of the rest of the major news this week, many of you will know that last week, in fact, marked the running of the latest edition of the National Fire Chiefs Council's National Sprinkler Campaign. As the name of that campaign suggests, it's all about focusing on raising the profile of fire sprinklers with a view towards keeping more people and buildings safe from fire, which is what we all want. In order to truly reduce the number of fire-related deaths and injuries, the company Plumis is calling for those who champion the Awareness Week to take a more forward-looking approach towards ensuring opportunities to improve fire safety are not allowed to pass by unmissed. I think that's a fair comment, Mark, given that the challenges presented to us all today around fire safety are changing as a result of alterations to the way in which we live our lives and life expectancies in general. For instance, figures tell us that while fires caused by smoking have declined, fires as a result of electrical items and white goods have actually increased. And in addition to this, the people most at risk of death in domestic fires are those individuals considered to be vulnerable. We're talking about the elderly, those who are disabled and individuals unable to escape from a fire in an easy manner. The fire challenges presented by an ageing population call for the next generation of fire safety technology and the integration of more sophisticated and flexible fire protection solutions. In light of this, and this is the key point to note here, Plumis is asking for the fire industry to really rethink what's fit for purpose and encourage an open discussion about the various fire safety systems available to protect individuals uh, depending on their needs and requirements. Now, sprinklers themselves, of course, control the spread of a fire and in some cases extinguish it completely, preventing fire damage and spread to adjacent areas as a result. However, sprinklers can be slow to activate when tackling a fire with a slow growth rate and provide limited uh, benefit for smoke control. That being so, it's arguable that Awareness Weeks like National Sprinkler Week should focus on raising awareness about all automatic water suppression systems, such that we avoid discussions emitting perfectly suitable alternatives. Um, the importance of sprinklers can never be underestimated, Mark, of course. Tests show that they operate on 94% of occasions, and in short, they exhibit very high reliability. When they do operate, they extinguish or contain the fire on 99% of occasions, and in both converted and purpose-built flats, they're shown to be 100% effective in controlling fires. That's a pretty key point. One thing that I think that does need to be addressed is the disparity in regulations, Mark. The laws are far stricter in Scotland and Wales than they are in England and Northern Ireland at present, and it's clear something needs to be done about this situation. Yeah, I can remember going to an event hosted by BAFSA to celebrate that Wales was the first country in the United Kingdom to make it now mandatory for all new build residential premises to have a suppression system in it. And it's something that Scotland is now looking at, but it's not something that the English government are looking at. Obviously, it's something that Plumis will, will push because Plumis manufacture those systems. But BAFSA have also, for many years now, called for unity. Just like you've said, make it across the United Kingdom, standard set of regulations of having sprinklers in new build properties. Um, you know, residential, etc. So I, I do, I do concur with this that there needs to be closer engagement between all governments to try and have the same standards and regulations across the board. So yeah, this is a story definitely to keep an eye on. And uh, you know, credit to NFCC for pushing this and for BAFSA. So my final news story for the week is about well, pretty much the biggest news story in the sector, uh, which of course is the Grenfell inquiry. So this is set to resume. The Grenfell Towers Public Inquiry Consultation on how best to resume hearings due to COVID-19 has come back with some results and a substantial consensus is in favour of a limited attendance hearing in July. That'll probably be the earliest it happens, if I'm honest, Brian. So as, as people will know, it's been split into two phases, the public inquiry, which is, of course, chaired by Sir Martin Moore-Bick, 
Phase one focused on the factual narrative of the event or the night of the fire. And that began on the 21st of May 2018 and concluded in December last year. And the report of that came out last year as well. Phase two of the public inquiry examines the cause of these events, including how Grenfell Tower came to be in this condition, which allowed the fire to spread the way to identify us in phase one. Hearings for phase two were suspended following the lockdown called by the government back in March. So, But at this stage, the inquiry then went out to a consultation to find out what was the best way to carry on the hearings. And the public inquiry has given an update uh, on module one of phase two, focusing on refurbishment. And that point was to continue to explore whether it may be possible to resume hearings on a remote basis before restrictions are lifted, with core participants geodated when the public inquiry is in a position to do so. And as I said at the start, that has now had a general consensus that there will be limited attendance hearings from July at the earliest. Brian, have you got any thoughts on this? Yes, Mark, the last thing you mentioned there about potential options uh, for hearings, they have been outlined in actual fact, and there's three uh, sort of things on the table, if you like. The first includes suspending hearings until social distancing restrictions have been lifted completely. The second is conducting hearings remotely via video conferencing uh, platforms. We're using all those at the moment, of course, all of us, or resuming hearings for limited attendance when social distancing restrictions are partially lifted. Uh, either way, all responses had to be submitted by the 27th of April. Uh, the consultation itself, we're told in numbers, received 67 responses indicating a substantial consensus in favour of limited attendance hearings, uh, with no alternative options, in fact, suggested outside of the original three. Now, having considered carefully all of the responses received, the public inquiry team has come to the clear conclusion, that was a quote, that the chosen option presents the best way in which the public inquiry can pursue its important work with the necessary urgency. Consequently, Mark, those involved are now developing a detailed plan for implementing this option, which would enable hearings to resume safely and in accordance with the government's own guidance. The primary consideration would be to protect the physical safety and mental well-being of all those involved, which is of prime importance, while also making sure the programme for taking evidence is back on track as soon as possible. So a lot of key news has come out over the last fortnight since our last podcast. But if you want to hear and see the latest news in the fire safety sector, please do go to the Fire Safety Matters website, which is www.fsmatters.com. Now, it seems now is the perfect time to bring in Warren Spencer. Warren is a guest for us every episode of the podcast. And you can get your questions to Warren if you want any legal advice by using the hashtag FSM podcast. For those of you that don't know, Warren is Managing Director of Black Hood's Bud Solicitors in Blackpool and has prosecuted more cases than anybody else in the UK under the Fire Safety Order. I sat down with Warren earlier and here's what he had to say. Morning, Warren. How are you? Morning, Mark. I'm good, thank you. Are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So this week I wanted to ask you some questions in terms of how fire safety law is happening during lockdown, because we're speaking to each other now um, remotely. So how have you found things have changed since the lockdown? Well, I do a lot of training um, as well as uh, criminal cases, uh, training for the fire services and for the public sec- private sector um, and that effectively has been halted 
I have done some webinar training, which is it's difficult because you can't get a feel for the room and uh, it's very difficult to get feedback and um, buy in from the from the participants. But uh, so all the training pretty much has been put back as face to face. As far as uh, criminal cases are concerned, then the, the courts are effectively adjourning them month on month. Hopefully, I think they're hoping that it gets to a point where they can be dealt with um, to accommodate social distancing, etc. There was a, a period where trials were cancelled and um, no trials were happening. Some trials are now taking place, but obviously it, the courts will take the most serious cases first, and those being with people in custody, which is very unusual for a fire safety case. So um, the courts will have a backlog of not just fire safety cases, but all cases throughout the summer and, and towards the autumn. And uh, as far as enforcement is concerned, generally, fire officers and fire safety teams, I think, are, are mainly working from home. And, and obviously, it's not an appropriate time to be looking at buildings and, and inspecting buildings. And of course, many buildings are closed in any event and, and don't have any relevant persons inside them. Now, Warren, I think when we spoke before, because as we said many times before, you prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than, than anybody else. How many cases is it now that you have prosecuted? Is it over 150? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's always a, a fluid figure, but it's over 200. Wow, it's over 200 now. Now, one of the questions we've had in is, what's the most common form of prosecution under the fire safety order that you've overseen? I'm guessing it's probably something to do with HMOs, isn't it? It's, it yeah, I'd say HMOs are living above the shop. That's the most common um, people taking on commercial premises and then accommodating either staff or themselves above the shop without appropriate separation between the commercial premises and the living accommodation or without the appropriate escape routes or warning systems in relation to the um, escape routes from the living premises. Well, you and I have done a couple of mock trials together at the fire safety events before when they were running in Manchester. And we did uh, a mock trial of a real case that you actually prosecuted uh, under, under an HMO. What are the most common failings you've seen in terms of HMO prosecutions? What, what's the most common thing that's led to people being prosecuted, would you say? Well, first and foremost, and, and somewhat disturbingly, because this is what the fire safety order is all about, is a lack of a fire risk assessment. The, the number of times you read in a police interview, sorry, a PACE interview, um, that, uh, you know, have you got a fire risk assessment, assessment? Yes, I have. Where is it? It's all in my head. That, that's, that's the foundation of the fire safety order is the risk assessment. And that's usually where it starts, because um, if there is no thought to fire risk assessing, then everything else probably gets worse from there. So yeah, um, fire risk assessment, always very common. Um, separation, very common. But Article 14, which has the probably the most number of uh, breaches within, the, within one article involving escape routes, Article 14 is by far the most common uh, and, and always figures in some form or other in, in a prosecution. And Warren, obviously, you know, you're back with us in a fortnight. And if you want to get questions to Warren through the podcast, you can use the hashtag FSM podcast. But Warren, in the meantime, if people want to get in touch with you or your firm, how can they do so? It's Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. I do have an Instagram page, which is uh, very rarely used. But uh, yeah, I'm easily contactable through uh, our website, Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. Thanks, Warren. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Mark. Stay well.
time around is Gary Craig. Gary is the sales director at global fire protection company Advanced and has worked in the industry for the last 35 years. In the main, he has now been tasked to work on new markets and channels. Mark interviewed him to find out about all of the latest developments with the business. Morning, Gary. How are you? Good morning, uh, Mark. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. And you? Yeah, great, great. Well, obviously, you're new in post at Advanced. So um, just a couple of quick questions to kick off. Um, why did you join Advanced and what's going to be the focus of your new role? Uh, good question. Um, I mean, my, my question would be, why would you not join Advanced? It's an amazing company. Um, I've known them for probably 20 years since they, you know, since they were first established in, in one form or another. Um, you know, they've, they've had an incredible year on year performance in terms of growth. They're extremely well respected in the marketplace. You know, their products are, are certainly market leading. Um, I know a lot of the team there and they've got a fantastic team with an awful lot of experience, um, you know, both in the sort of sales areas, but also product management, um, R&D. So a really strong um, business in that respect. Um, they're certainly dedicated to meeting the needs of customers in the market. So they stay close to that and make sure that they, uh, you know, they deliver the requirements of the market. And then there's various things that layer on top of that, like ad specials, which is uh, bespoke panels for particularly uh, difficult sites or, or large sites. Very strong tech support team as well. And they have an online uh, support system through Advanced 360, which really gives a portal access to um, installers and maintainers to, um, you know, to get to information uh, to help them as well. So, you know, I think there's a, a huge, a huge background there of a really strong and really solid company. So what's my focus for the, the new role? Really, it's on the strategic growth of the business. The business is really strong in the UK, and but there's still more we can do there. But then when we look internationally, there's there's an awful lot of opportunity for growth. We've got some good international markets and some good international customers, but there really are more opportunities there. And um, when we look also at new products, we've got quite a few new products coming to market. So, you know, making sure we get those to market efficiently, effectively, communicate it well and, um, you know, get customers buying those products. And I guess the, the final thing on there is really what I, I really want to work on also is is the customer experience with the business, yeah? Are we are we providing the right sort of customer service, the right face to our customers? Are we easy to deal with? And and can we enhance that process to make ourselves slicker, smoother and and, and a better company to work with? So you've mentioned there about some exciting things in the product pipeline. What's Advance had that's relatively new to market? And looking ahead, what's in the product pipeline at the moment? Okay, yeah, well, I mean, we did a podcast only a week or two ago on a new evacuation control system to BS8629. Uh, you're probably aware that was a new standard that came in place, you know, after the tragedies of, of Grenfell. Um, it really is for high-rise um, buildings containing flats, um, anything more than 18 metres above ground level. Um, we work very closely with um, with that standard and also with the uh, fire brigades to make sure we have a product to meet that. And we'll be launching that very, very soon. Um, so that, that's a really big um, opportunity for us, I think. And, um, you know, obviously it's not a fire alarm panel, so it's an adjacent technology that expands our range. Um, and what you may or may not be aware is we, you know, we, we, we also have quite a um, powerful emergency lighting system. Um, we've expanded that further with um, some low voltage um, lighting in that range. So, you know, that gives us a wider opportunity um, in the emergency lighting space. 
Um, and like a lot of companies, we're starting to focus heavily on our digital offerings as well with remote connectivity and cloud-based solutions, because I think that's that really is um, a big part of the future and, and something we you know we really need to be closely involved with. And finally, obviously, we've got continued evolution of our existing range, both at the higher end network uh, part of the business, but also at the lower end sort of single single loop areas where we you know we're trying to develop panels to to suit different requirements at that level. Well, I'm definitely familiar with the webinar you did a couple of weeks ago because you did it with us. Um, and anyone that hasn't seen uh, that webinar, you can watch it on demand now. You just go to the FS Matters website and click on the webinars tab. So www.fsmatters.com and click on the, the webinars tab and you'll be able to see that advanced webinar and you'll get a CPD hour if you do so. But but you touched a moment ago on digital. What are your views on digital innovation that's happening within the industry? Yeah, I think this is a really important area. You know, with the um, you know with the advent of five G, uh, a lot of talk around smart buildings, smart cities, Internet of Things. I think anyone who ignores this ignores it at their peril. I think it's an industry-wide drive towards using innovative solutions to not only from a installation point of view, but also to the benefits of the end users and the customers. You know, the development of cloud-based enabled products. You know, will allow all manner of things in terms of you know better response to fires, um, you know better communication throughout a building, perhaps via app services or whatever. But also, when we start talking about the installation, maintenance, and service, you know, being able to remotely access control panels, understand exactly what is required if there's a maintenance visit, um, being able to produce um, you know data around what what was tested at a particular time and a particular date will become um, more important. And I also think, you know, we, we, when you think about where we are currently in the COVID crisis with lockdown, you know, it's going to get more, or it is, it is currently more difficult to get into buildings. So being able to to do a, a one, one visit fix, knowing before you get there what those issues are, I think is, is good for the end user and also good for the, the service-based company. So there's an awful lot of areas where that digital piece is going to make a huge difference. So, you know, the number of our readers are um, fire safety managers, consultants, risk assessors, uh, insurers and consultants. Can, so for their benefit, anyone that's not familiar with Advanced, can you give some examples of some large projects that Advance have been involved in recently? And in particular, is there anything relevant to the installer market? Well, well certainly if we talk about some of the iconic buildings we've done recently, and I'll, I'll break it into two areas, I suppose. We'll talk about the UK and then mention something internationally. But if we look at the UK, um, I think everybody knows the Shard. Well, that's, that's advanced products in there. Um, we're just working on uh, 22 Bishopgate in London, which is the Western Europe's second tallest building. Um, you know, which is the forefront of fire technology. So that's 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 a real iconic building for us. Um, I think everybody also is aware in London the redevelopment of the Battersea power station. Um, that's probably the largest redevelopment project in in the UK. I think it's something like four thousand residents in there, and you know, shops, um, offices, entertainment, and, um, and and various venues there. So. You know, again, huge projects there that I think are iconic and, and well known. Um, on the international front, you know, we've we've been heavily involved in the world's world's longest sea crossing, the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau sea crossing. There, um, you know, and this is where 
we've used a, a number of our products, including the releasing panels, the XGOs, as well as the um, you know, the network systems as well. Um, and then one more on the international front would be the historic archives of Belgrade. Um, there's there's some like 34,000 books and um, you know documents, etc., stored in this, which obviously are historic and um, one-off, so they need to be well uh, well protected. So again, they're covered with multi-areas of our EXGO products and, and our touch control, touchscreen repeaters to you know to really give a, a, a strong and powerful um, fire safety solution to, to that particular area. And in terms of the installer market, is there anything particularly relevant for the, those of our readers and listeners that are installers? Yeah, I think when you when we talk about some of those big projects, you know, one of the important things, I think one of the things is quite unique about Advanced is is we have a, a section within business called Ad Specials, which is where we produce bespoke solutions for projects like this, because very rarely you can manage a, a system like this with standard panels. We actually design, you know, specific panels with with all sorts of key switches, mimics, uh, whatever's required to you know to deliver a solution that's tailored to to these sort of sites, and you know the that's all built around the you know the legacy of of um, advance, which is really about ease of use and reliability. So I think from a installer's point of view, um, that's really important. And on the ease of use front, obviously we have plenty of tools to aid designs, installation, commissioning, and maintenance, and easy access to information and training through, as I mentioned before, our Advanced 360 portal. So, um, you know, I think we've got lots of support in place there, but also the ability to design a product to meet a specific requirement um, you know, on some of these large and difficult sites. And it'd be remiss of me not to ask you, which obviously still in the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic, um, what's the effect of COVID-19 been on advance? And have you got any good news stories that you can share? Well, it's been profound. I think it has for for everybody. Um, What we've done very, very closely is follow the government guidelines. So um, very difficult within a factory environment to, to enforce social distancing, but it's it's meant we've had to completely relay out our manufacturing facility to make sure we keep that spacing between each part of the production line. Um, anybody who isn't you know, isn't needed for production, you know, we've, we've got them working from home wherever possible. Uh, we you know, spend a lot of time there making sure the IT and everything is, is available to those, those people working from home. And I have to say, you know, I've been really impressed with how the, everybody in the business has really risen to this challenge and really taken it, taken it, it seriously in terms of... Um, you know, it, it, it's had a really positive effect on the business now. So that's that's how we're working internally. And, and that's obviously had some effect on, on our capacity, um, you know, but certainly our order book is still looking pretty strong. And, you know, we're, we're managing to meet some of the key requirements. And one of the one of the things we've been really successful at, actually, is um, is we put a prioritisation around some of the critical sites, you know, such as hospitals, even the um, Nightingale hospitals, I think we supplied four of those with product in very short timescales. You know, so we've been able to pull out the, the stops and support some of those critical key infrastructure sites. As well as that, clearly we can't deal with our customers in the same ways we previously had with training and sales visits and things like that. So we've been launching a series of webinars, um, you know, to, to inform our customers on particular subjects. And they've been really popular. You mentioned the one we did with, with you guys on on. Uh, 
on the BS8629. Um, we're also introducing our training modules online now and working through a series of how-to videos, so really short videos on how to do very, you know, everyday things that we would often have uh, calls coming into the business for. So, you know, we're trying to make a lot of this stuff easier access and just work in a, in a slightly different way with our customers. So for those of us that want to find out more information about Advanced, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, a variety of ways, as with, with most companies. Websites, um, you know, our website is um, www.advancedco.com. Um, and if you go into that, that's where you'll find the Advanced 360. So you can log into that, get a, uh, a user password and access codes and give you access to an awful lot of information there. And, and that's where you'll find our training courses, etc. Um, we post on Twitter at Advanced Live. Um, so that's, a, that's an area where we, we put a lot of information. LinkedIn, just search for Advanced Electronics Limited. And the videos we'll be putting up on Vimeo uh, at Advanced. Yeah, so there's, there's a numerous ways, as with most companies these days, uh, to, uh, to access the organization and our information. Well, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. No, thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed it. And uh, take care and stay safe. latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. You can read more on the issues raised and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. On the next podcast, we'll be talking to Nigel Ward from FFE. And of course, there'll be another legal review courtesy of Warren Spencer. We'll see you then.